How many of you guys, raise your hands, have ever heard the term deja vu? You ever heard that term before? Okay, now, keep your hand up. Have you ever experienced deja vu? Anybody? Okay, I have. It's weird. Now, I'm no linguist, but my understanding is that deja vu is a French phrase, and it translates in English to already seen. It describes the phenomenon of feeling as though you have already lived through or experienced the present situation before. That's deja vu. And my guess is for some of you, as we read through Genesis chapter 20 just now, you might be thinking, am I experiencing some deja vu right now? (laughs) Haven't we already read this story before? And that's because Genesis chapter 20 describes a scenario that is almost identical to the one described in Genesis chapter 12. You remember Abraham, shortly after he starts following the Lord, he goes to Canaan, there's a severe famine in the land, and he takes all his family, and they go down into Egypt. And they get to Egypt, and he's scared that they're going to take Sarah for their wife and kill him, and so he tells everyone, she's my sister. And then shock of shocks, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, takes Sarah as his wife. It's a giant mess. God has to supernaturally intervene and rescue Abraham and Sarah out of it. Almost identical circumstances 25 years before these events. And in Genesis 20, it happens again. And as the reader, I don't know about you, but for me, it feels redundant. It feels like, well, haven't we seen this movie before? (laughs) I mean, what is going on here? And when I read this, the first thing I think is, seriously, Abraham? (laughs) I mean, this is one of those mistakes that you should really only have to make one time, you would think. So that's the first impression that I get. But the second thing I think is, why is this here? Why is this in the Bible? How does this advance the plot? What is this meant to teach us? If you've been with us studying through the book of Genesis for any number of weeks, then you've probably begun to realize that Genesis, it is historical narrative. Okay, so all of these things actually happened in the sequence that the text says that they happened, but it's also meant to convey theological truth. It's not just like a biography of Abraham's life, this section, although it is that. It's also here, it's written, it's composed in such a way to teach us about who God is and what he's like and what his design is and what his mission in the world is. And so from that perspective, you begin to think as you read Genesis chapter 20, why is this here? What lessons are we supposed to learn? I mean, am I supposed to just take my sermon notes from Genesis 12? and just go through them again, and we just go through all the the teaching points from that lesson? The answer is no. This is here because it stands on its own. God has something new and unique and totally different he wants to teach you this morning through this passage. And to understand what that is, we need to understand, we need to examine two characteristics of the story that are unique. They're totally different than the one in Genesis chapter 12. And so we're going to kind of organize our outline around those two characteristics. The first one is the position in the narrative. So where this story is located on the timeline of events is obviously totally different. And the things that happen before this and the things that happen after this are totally different. And those are the most significant things in terms of extracting what is God trying to teach us through this. So there's some obvious differences. This takes place 25 years later. It's in a different country. It's a different king. 
A lot has changed since then. But the most significant thing is what happens right before and what happens right after. You remember, right before this in Genesis 18, Abraham was visited by God himself. And two angels in the form of three men. So three guys, three humans, they show up and they're not normal humans. One of them is God manifest as a human and two of them are angels. And they sit down under Abraham's tree and they eat his food. And it represents the most intimate interaction between God and a human being since the Garden of Eden. So it's a very significant event. Now, why does God do that? Why does God come down from heaven and show up on Abraham's front door? There's two reasons. The first is to reinforce the promise. For nearly 25 years, God has promised and been promising and reaffirming his promise that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son. They're going to be a great nation with many descendants, but first you have to have one descendant, and they don't have one. And so they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. They're very old. Abraham, at this point, is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. Their biological clock is up. And so humanly speaking, it is utterly impossible that they would conceive a child. But God shows up. He says, listen, it's going to happen. And he says, for the first time now, in Genesis 18, it's going to happen soon, in about a year. He says, in about a year, you're going to have a son. And when we look at Abraham's failure in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 20, I think the thing that leaps off the page, the thing that is the most alarming is his failure as a husband. At least for me, when I read this, I think that is what is so egregious, is that he fails to do what every husband is supposed to do on a most basic level. He doesn't protect his wife. He doesn't honor his wife. He doesn't care for her. He's not committed to her no matter what. And so it's inexcusable. You're thinking, what are you doing here, Abraham? And it's basically the same failure in both stories. But his failure here in Genesis 20 is actually way worse. It's way worse than the first time around. Because remember, God has just told Abraham and Sarah they're going to have a son. When? In about a year. Which means, in roughly three or four months, very short window, Sarah is going to get pregnant. She's going to get pregnant in the next three to four months. And this is not like Mary getting pregnant with Jesus, okay? So certainly, this is going to be a miraculous conception. But it's not like Mary with Jesus in the New Testament. That was also a miraculous conception. It's the most well-known miraculous conception in the Bible. But in that case, there's no husband, there's no human father, Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit as a virgin. It's a, mirac- it's a miraculous conception, but that's not the plan with Abraham and Sarah. The miracle is that they're way past childbearing age, but they're still going to conceive in the normal way. We know that because as Sarah in Genesis 18 is listening to this conversation between God and Abraham, and he says that she's about to get pregnant, it says this in verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old And getting on in years, Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she's listening, verse 12. She laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? The ESV says, will I have pleasure? Most commentators that I've read on Genesis agree that she's not talking about the pleasure of becoming a mom, the pleasure of having a child. She's talking about sexual pleasure. This is how she's going to conceive. It's just through the normal means. So that being the case, what are some things that might threaten the fulfillment of God's promise? 
what might cause this to break down? Well, it's not age. They're already way too old to bear children. Age is not a problem. It's not disease. It's not some sort of physical limitation. We know that because even when they were way younger, they were never able to get pregnant. She's been unable to conceive her entire life. So those are not the roadblocks. God said, remember, he says, is anything impossible for God? Nothing's impossible. Your age is not a big deal. Your physical conditions are not a big deal. So what could stop this pregnancy from happening? Well, about the only thing that I could think of is if Abraham manages to give his wife away to someone else. <laughs> so they're no longer physically together. He actually can't be intimate with her because she's no longer his wife. She's another man's wife. That's about the only thing. And that's exactly what Abraham manages to do. You're like, that's the only thing. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, those videos where it's like in sports, people celebrate too soon. Have you ever seen this before? There's like a million examples of this. I saw a video recently. It was of a 100-meter dash, track and field. 100 meters, that's a, it's a race, so you're running. And uh, first one to cross the finish line wins. And it's a fast race. It's like 10, 11 seconds. And this race was very close. And the, the guy in the lead, he's only a couple paces in front. He's like two strides in, in front of the guy right next to him. They're the, they're the two favorites to win. And a couple strides is a lot in a 100-meter dash. And they're about 80 meters in. So there's like one second left. And all he has to do is cross the finish line. He's going to win. But as he pulls ahead, and again, just a couple strides, he looks over his shoulder at the guy in the lane next to him who's in second place, and he gives him the peace sign, like showboating, trying to be cool, like Tyreek Hill. And as he does that, and he's running at a full sprint, he trips over his own feet and falls flat on his face <laughs> and loses. And you're thinking, dude, all you had to do was cross the finish line. But he manages to screw it up because he's showboating, celebrating too soon. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. Abraham is so close. You're like, Abraham, just cross the finish line, dude. You got like one year. God says you're going to have the son of the promise in one year. And right at the end, he manages to give his wife away to a foreign king, which is about the only thing that could prevent them from conceiving a child. And so if you can believe it, the events in Genesis 18 and 19 actually make this instance way worse than the one in Genesis 12. The other thing happening in Genesis 18 is that God, the other reason why he comes down in the form of a man is he has this conversation with Abraham and he's teaching Abraham an important lesson about justice. God kind of lets us in on his thinking in this conversation. And his reasoning is if Abraham is going to be the father of many nations and bring about God's blessing to the whole world, he's going to need, in the words of God, Genesis 18, 19, to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Which means Abraham needs to know what those are. Abraham needs to know deeply and understand the righteousness and the justice of God. And the underlying lesson that God teaches Abraham is that he is just and he will judge sinners. He is just and he will judge sinners. That God himself is the most frightening force known to the universe. This is why in Proverbs 1, 7, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is why Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body and afterwards do nothing more. He says, fear the one who can throw you into hell after death. Yes, this is the one to fear. God is just, he's holy, he's perfect, he's righteous, and he must punish and judge 
sinners. That's the lesson. And you remember Abraham is struggling with this lesson because the illustration of the lesson is the destruction of Sodom and all of the other cities on the plain. And Abraham says, wait a minute though. God, are you going to destroy the righteous along with the wicked? That doesn't seem fair. And he he says, won't the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer is yes. God says, if I find any righteous people there, I will spare them. I'll spare them. And then God judges the city. And he spares the one righteous man who's there, which is Lot. And then in Genesis 20, we encounter this question in the narrative. Verse 3, it says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die. God is going to judge him. God is going to punish him. Because of the woman you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Isn't this the same question? He's like, wait a second, God, aren't you just? Aren't you fair? It's the same question. And this time, it's being asked not by the faith-filled Abraham, but by a wicked pagan king. He says, wait a minute, I didn't know she was married. They lied to me. My conscience is clean. And what's more, I haven't slept with her. I've done anything wrong. And so in context, what we have here are more lessons on the justice of God. It's like it's fine-tuning. The story is fine-tuning for us as the reader an understanding of God's justice. Three, four more lessons specifically on the justice of God. Number one, God holds us responsible for sin regardless of how aware of our sin we are. This is important. God's standards are God's standards regardless of whether or not you know them or you're aware of them. And justice has to work this way. The standard must be the starting point, not your understanding or perception of the standard. I'll give you a a simple example. Think about the speed limit. Just basic law that we all have to abide every day. Now imagine you're driving 75 miles an hour and the speed limit is 25 miles an hour. And it's a school zone. You're driving by an elementary school, just flying by a 75, and you get pulled over, and the officer says, what in the world was that? (laughs) You were going 50 miles an hour over the speed limit. What are you doing? If you said, and you honestly could say, hey, I didn't know the speed limit was 25 miles an hour, would that make you innocent? Of course not. It would make you negligent. (laughs) You didn't know. Now, let's say, different scenario. I can't imagine this has ever happened. But let's say somebody set up a bunch of fake speed limit signs right down that same road. They covered up the 25, and they put a 75 on there. And so you legitimately were deceived. Would you be innocent in that case? You wouldn't. Now, you might be a victim of deception, but you still would be guilty of breaking the speed limit. And this is what happened with Abimelech. He says in verse 5, Didn't he himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. That's a pretty good defense. But God still says, You're about to die. You are guilty. So God holds us responsible for sin regardless of how aware of our sin we are. Second lesson we learn about the justice of God is that in God's judgment, He is most concerned with your heart. First Samuel we learn, says that man look, looks at the outward appearance. God looks at your heart. So God actually is concerned. He, he does take this into account where Abimelech is coming from, his perspective. It says in verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. 
I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. So God is dealing differently with Abimelech than he deals with the Sodomites. He says, no, I know your heart. And he gives him a way of escape, a way of repentance. The third lesson that we learn is that God himself guards us against our own sin at times and provides ways of escape and repentance. This is very good news, especially for people who are far from God. This is such good news. God himself, he will put roadblocks in your way. When you're just falling headlong towards the world and towards your sinful desires, God actually himself will restrict you in his mercy. We see that here. And we see that God is working for your repentance. God is working in your life in ways that you're not even aware of, using even your own sin to bring you to repentance. I can look back at my life especially when I was a young man, not trying to follow the Lord. And there was so many times where I wanted to pursue something that was totally wrong, totally worldly, totally sinful. And it was like there was all these roadblocks. <laughs> and I look back and I think, oh, God was protecting me from myself. God, God was hemming me in and, and directing my steps so that I wouldn't just totally shipwreck my life. I'm so grateful for that. And it's important that we see this playing out right after the destruction of Sodom. So what happens right before this? God rains down sulfur and fire and kills probably tens of thousands of people. He judges them severely. And the sequence here is important because what we see with Abimelech is that God does not relish the judgment of anyone. God's not like excited. He's not like up in heaven thinking, oh man, those Sodomites, they got it coming to them. That's not how God views judgment. Romans 2 says his kindness, his mercy, his patience are designed to lead you to repentance. He wants all people to repent and turn from sin and escape his judgment. So if you synthesize those first three points, one of the main lessons here, number four, is that God is just, God will judge, and God provides the way of escape from judgment. That's remarkable. God is just, God will judge, and God provides the way of escape from judgment. This is a massive theme throughout the Bible. God does this with the ark and Noah. God judges the world. He kills everybody, but he provides the means of escape from the judgment in the ark. He does it with Adam and Eve with the animal skins where he clothes them. Most scholars believe that he provided with those animals an atoning sacrifice for their sin. But he doesn't just provide escape for the people of God. It's not just for Noah and his family. It's not just for Adam and Eve. He provides a way of escape for the wicked as well. Abimelech is not part of the blessing. Abimelech is not, he's not going to be a part of the people of God, ethnically speaking, genealogically speaking, and yet God shows up and provides a way of escape for him. And he does this all over the Bible. One of the classic examples is the book of Jonah with the Ninevites, where God sends his prophet from, from the promised land, the nation of Israel, to a faraway land of brutal, murderous people. And Jonah reluctantly goes he gives the worst gospel presentation in all of human history. He says, repent or die. 
That's basically what he says. And they all turn. They all repent. And God saves them from the coming judgment. It's remarkable. God provides the way of escape. And he ultimately does this in Jesus. Jesus is the way of escape for those who are far from God, who are guilty of breaking his commands. Jesus was punished on the cross so that if you would turn, God is all throughout human history, he's warning us. He's warning you, turn. Don't keep going headlong into sin. Don't keep just doing whatever you feel like and doing whatever you want in your selfishness and in your lust and in your greed and in your pride. Turn. Jesus is there. Jesus died to take the penalty for all of that sin. And if you trust him, stop trusting yourself. It's not turning and then saying, okay, I just got to clean up my act. Got to develop, you know, read atomic habits and (laughs) become a better person. You can't trust yourself. You have to trust in him. And if you do that, you can be saved from God's coming judgment. Finally, the position in the narrative, what happens after this is also very significant. Right after this, Genesis 21, Isaac is born. The son of Abraham and Sarah. Which is why the story so strongly emphasizes that Abimelech was not part of the equation. Abimelech did not sleep with Sarah. Verse 14, then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves, gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. He said to Sarah, look, I am giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. One scholar estimated that it would take the average working man 150 years to earn 1,000 pieces of silver. So this is a gigantic sum of money. He says, take some land, take some property, take some livestock, take a bunch of money. And what is the point of all that? It's verification of your honor. He's saying, I for sure, in case anybody's wondering, very, very public statement, I did not sleep with her. And this is important to the story. It's important to the Israelites who are reading this when it was originally written down. Because God wants us to know Isaac did not come from anybody except for Abraham and Sarah. The son of the promise was born just like God said he would be. And so in spite of Abraham's sin and failure, God preserves the fulfillment of his promise. That's the first characteristic about the story that is unique from the one in Genesis 12. It's position in the narrative. The second unique characteristic is Abraham's strengthened faith and character. It's Abraham himself. Abraham is a different person than he was in Genesis chapter 12. This is 25 years later. He's a totally different man. He doesn't even have the same name. You remember then his name was Abram. God changes his name to Abraham. And just about everything about Abraham is better. It's different in a good way. Now, Abraham's not a perfect man, not even close. It's one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it doesn't portray the heroes of the faith as perfect. They are deeply, deeply flawed. And Abraham is no exception. He's made some huge mistakes. But the overall trajectory of his life has been upward. He's become more and more and more like the God that he worships. He's more faithful. He's more 
self-disciplined. He's more loving. He's more obedient. He's more wise, especially when you consider where he came from. You remember when we meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 11, he's living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is ancient Mesopotamia, northern Iraq. And uh, archaeologists have excavated Ur, city of Ur. There was a giant ziggurat, which is like a temple. They worshipped the moon god, Nana. Uh, They know that uh, they used human sacrifice as a major part of their religious practice. And Abraham lived there. That's where he's from. That's where he was born. And he was 75 years old before he'd ever even heard the name of Yahweh. So think about where he's come from. Since that point, Abraham was obedient to the call of God to travel to a foreign land. He didn't know where he was going. He's faithfully worshipped God alone. He's abandoned all of his previous idolatry. He's believed God's prolonged promise to give him a son. He's been faithful to care for his nephew Lot. You remember he gives him the first choice of the land. He goes and rescues him when Lot is taken captive and kidnapped. He was obedient to the command of circumcision. That would not have been an easy one. He met with God in human form. He's shown great compassion for other people, foreign people that he doesn't even know. He's become a friend of God in the story. If Abraham was a modern evangelical Christian, we would say he has a very powerful testimony. His resume of faith in the Bible is impressive. So this is not who Abraham was in Genesis chapter 12 when he almost lost his wife the first time. He's more mature. He's stronger. He's a better man. Why is that important? Well, three points. First, teaches us that even spiritually mature, faith-filled Christians can fall into old patterns of sin, even very destructive ones. This is really actually very helpful to know. Abraham's rise to greater spiritual maturity makes his failure that much more surprising and that much more inexcusable. It's like, what are you doing here, Abraham? And it illustrates something that we will see throughout the rest of the Bible and something that I'm guessing you're going to experience personally if you try to follow Christ long enough, and that is that sin and failure are inevitable. They're just enough. We are weak, broken, needy people. And if you are a Christian, it doesn't matter if you've been following Christ for six months or 60 years, you are going to struggle at times. You're going to struggle. And you're going to give in to those struggles. You're going to fail. You're going to fall into old habits. You're going to fall into seasons of rut and discouragement and even open sin, open rebellion against God. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that you should be apathetic about sin. Like it's not a big deal. Oh, well, this is just a normal part of the Christian life. Everybody just falls into major sin. Nope. (laughs) That's not how your perspective should be. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't guard against sin, that you shouldn't set up good boundaries and accountability and self-discipline in your life. It doesn't mean that you can't be set free from sin in major ways that you can't conquer addictions and major character flaws, but it does mean, here's what it means, you shouldn't be surprised when you fail. And you shouldn't be surprised when the Christians around you fail. Like, oh, shock of shocks. Do you believe what that person did? Do you believe what my spouse did? Do you believe what I did? Don't be surprised. 
And that will help you to be prepared when it happens, because it will. One of the ironies, I think, of becoming more mature in your character and maturity as a Christian is that there is a greater sense of shame often associated with sin because it's more dissonant with your life. It's natural. It, it, it's more surprising. People would say, man, did they, I can't believe he or she said that. I can't believe he or she did that. And so it creates a greater temptation to hide. Because you think, well, this is not who I am. People, I'd be so ashamed if somebody knew I thought that or said that or did that. There's a greater temptation to hide your sin or justify your sin or blame others for your sin the longer you've been following Christ. And that's exactly what Abraham does. Bimlech says, hey, why did you do this? This was really wrong. Why did you do this? What is Abraham's answer? Abraham replied, I thought there's absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. So he hides. He hides behind a technicality. I mean, she's my my half-sister, but she's also your wife. (laughs) Okay, so that's a lie. It's irrelevant whether or not she's your half-sister. So he hides. Then he justifies. He says, you pagans, you don't fear God. So I knew if I, you know, I, I... I would have been killed. What choice did I have? The irony here is that in the story, Abimelech and his people, they do fear God. They just don't know about him. As soon as they encounter him, they fear him. They repent. They turn. They obey him. And Abraham, who's known God now for 25 years, doesn't fear him. He fears his circumstances more. And so rather than obeying God and acting consistently with the character of God, he takes matters into his own hands to do what he thinks is necessary for his safety. And then finally, he blames someone else. It's subtle in the story, but it's kind of like Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where he subtly blames God. Well, this woman that you you gave me, (laughs) you gave me, she took the fruit. Look at what Abraham says. God caused me to wander into this unknown, unsafe place, so I had to come up with some kind of plan for my safety. He's subtly blaming God for his own failure. All of these strategies, they will make your situation worse. (laughs) They're going to make it worse. None of this stuff will work. Here's what I'm pretty confident of this morning, is that there are people here right now in this room who are struggling with sin. There's just no doubt about it. Now, it might be to varying degrees, But some of you guys, you're struggling with old habits. You're struggling with discouragement. You're you're struggling with faithlessness. You're struggling with anger or bitterness or anxiety, temptation. Don't hide. Don't justify. Don't blame shift. What should you do instead? Well, you should do the opposite of everything Abraham did. That's what you should do. What do you do when you fall into sin? Confess the truth of your sin. Just call it what it is. Just say, this is wrong. This is what I've done. You need to do that before the Lord. God, I, I'm failing. I have failed. This is wrong. You might need to confess it to someone else. 
I'm not saying you need to shout it from the rooftops, but involve a brother or sister in Christ that you trust and say, hey, I'm struggling. I'm not doing okay. Would you pray for me? If you've sinned against a specific person, you might need to confess it to them and apologize, ask their forgiveness, but you need to confess the truth of your sin. You need to accept the full wrongness of your sin. This is all the time I hear this. Hey, I'm sorry, but... You know, I, yeah, I, I guess there's like this little 2% sliver of what I did wrong here, but if you hadn't done that, then you know, we wouldn't be here, obviously. <laughs> I'm sorry, but don't do that. Own the responsibility for your sin. Accept the full wrongness of it. I think this is another thing that people do is they look at their sin and they say, well, it's not that bad. It's not really as bad as it looks because I've got all these reasons why. Don't do that. See your sin the way God sees it. And when you do that, you can experience the second point Genesis 20 is trying to convey, which is that God's grace never stops being grace. God's grace never stops being grace. I think when you're first a Christian, when you realize, man, I'm a sinner, I deserve hell, Jesus died for me, hallelujah, and you put your faith in him, and you're born again, and you receive the Spirit of God, and you're baptized, and everything is new and exciting, and you can't believe that God would forgive you, and you think, of course, I need the grace of God, I'm totally dependent on the grace of God, but then five years goes by, and your life begins to change. Ten years goes by, 20 years go by. You've led people to Christ and you've been leading Bible studies and sharing the gospel and you've led your family well. And all of a sudden, you think, well, I've I've kind of graduated beyond grace. Now I've got to maintain a certain standard. That type of thinking will get you into so much trouble. That's pride. It's pride that says, I've been a Christian 30 years. Of course, I am not at fault in this situation. Certainly it's not because I've been selfish or careless or negligent or lazy. It's other people's fault. It's my employer's fault. It's my church's fault. It's my spouse's fault. That's pride. (laughs) To think you don't need the grace of God just because you've been following Jesus for 20 years or 30 years or 50 years. You don't understand the gospel then. You never stop needing the grace of God. And when you have that attitude, you actually miss out on His grace. Not because it's not available, because you don't recognize your need for it. We never stop needing God's grace. That's why God's grace is for the humble. And grace, by nature, comes to people who don't deserve it. That's what grace is. It is undeserved favor. Grace comes to people who don't deserve it, which in the story is Abraham. In Genesis 20, it's Abraham. The Sodomites are sinners. Lot and his daughters are sinners. Abimelech is a sinner. And in this story, what is highlighted is even Abraham, the faith-filled hero, is still a sinner in need of God's grace and God's saving promise. Hebrews 4, verse 15, 16 It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. 
when you recognize that you're still a sinner in need of God's grace, no matter how mature you are, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, no matter how far you've come, then you have a chance. Then you have a chance. And ironically, (laughs) then you have a chance actually not to fall into those ruts. And, and, and not to step on those giant landmines like Abraham does here. If you walk through life every day understanding, man, I'm broken. Um, I am a struggle bus on my own. And I absolutely am desperate for God's mercy. And you can go to him and he'll give it to you. He will help you. He will sustain you. He will strengthen you. He will continue to change you. And then you, you actually won't struggle as much. You won't fail as much. You have to know Grace never stops being grace. Finally, number three, lessons that we learned from this position, Abraham's, how far he's come in the story is that God's salvation is never dependent on people. This is one of the many great paradoxes of the Christian life, is that God uses people in his mission to save sinners, and yet God doesn't need anyone. It's almost hard to wrap your head around. You remember Abraham is supposed to be a blessing to the nations of the world. He's going to be the patriarch of the nation of Israel. He's going to be the genealogical patriarch of the coming Messiah who would be the savior of everyone. But here, in this story, is he a blessing to the nations? Is he a blessing to Abimelech? Nope. He actually brings a curse. He does the opposite of what he's supposed to do. You could say that Abraham is a terrible missionary to the people of Gerar. He doesn't tell them about Yahweh. He doesn't bring blessing. And yet God shows up to Abimelech himself in a dream and warns him of the coming judgment. He doesn't use anyone. He just does it. God just does it himself. And what we learn is God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. But... God does want you. Isn't that amazing? God has zero needs. He doesn't need you to accomplish his mission in the world. He could save everyone right now without any of us opening our mouths if he wanted to. But that's not his design. That's not his plan. He wants to use you. He wants to involve us in his mission to save the world. He wants you to be part of his mission to bless the nations. And this is very good news for people who are close to God. God wants you to never lose your sense of how sweet your salvation is, of how much you don't deserve it, and He wants to use you to do eternal, supernatural works for His glory as a part of His family, even though what you and I deserve is His judgment. And that is wild to think about. And so this story, Genesis 20, it shows us that God's mercy and grace are for those who are far from him, Abimelech, who don't know him, who stand guilty and are facing his judgment, and God's mercy and grace are necessary and available for those who are close to him, Abraham, who've been walking with him and been transformed by him. And just like God gives Abimelech a way to repent, he offers the same to his people in all situations. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 very well-known passage says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. 
He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Brothers and sisters, my prayer, my hope is that we are a church that constantly recognizes our need of God's grace. And that we, we would flee from all of the temptation, all of the idolatry, all of the shiny things in the world, and we would say, God, would you use me? Would you send me to the Abimelechs of our community and help me to represent you well? Help me to be a blessing. Help me to be a powerful witness to the testimony of a changed life. Someone who's believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for just your mercy, your grace, your sovereignty, Lord. God, I pray that you'd help us to see our need for grace every day. God, help us to take seriously our sin. Help us, God, not to have the attitude of, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a 40-year-old man. I'm a pastor. I can't tell people what I'm struggling with. What would they think of me? God, help us to be humble before you, God. Help us to see our sin and call our sin what it is so that we could turn from it and walk in grace. God, help us to conquer our sin by the grace of God and by having our values transformed. Lord, that we would care more about seeing lost people come to know you than we would about our personal profile or reputation. God, thank you that you don't abandon us. God, thank you that you don't give us what we deserve. Thank you, God, that you stick with us even in our failure, even in our struggle. And God, I pray that our hearts would be strengthened this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.